Welcome to Love Your Library, Hampshire Library's podcast. I'm Mary Stone with my co-host, Kate Price-McCarthy. Hi, Mary. And thanks to our supporter, BorrowBox, our library app that allows you to download e-books and audiobooks straight to your phone or tablet. All you need is your library membership number and PIN. Mary and I would normally be chatting to each other at one of our libraries, but like all Hampshire library staff, we're now miles apart, working from home using a clever bit of software to record our voices together. Our guest author this podcast is the acclaimed writer and campaigner Caroline Criado-Perez, who met up with the head of the library service, Emma Noyce, before the social distancing started. And later in the podcast, we'll be talking about some of the featured books this month on BorrowBox. This episode's title is inspired by our guest, author, writer, broadcaster and award-winning feminist campaigner, Caroline Criado-Perez. A couple of her standout campaigns include getting a woman on the £10 note and getting a statue of the suffragist Millicent Fawcett to be put up in Parliament Square. She was awarded the OBE in 2015 and her book, Invisible Women, was chosen in 2019 by the Royal Society as the Science Book of the Year. Invisible Women, which came out in paperback last month, is a brilliantly researched exploration of how just about everything from speech recognition software to bulletproof vests, from medical tests to even office temperature controls, are all designed for men as default. Let's hear what Caroline had to say when Emma met up with her. Here she is, reading a short excerpt from her book. Most of recorded human history is one big data gap. Starting with the theory of man the hunter, the chroniclers of the past have left little space for women's role in the evolution of humanity, whether cultural or biological. Instead, the lives of men have been taken to represent those of humans overall. When it comes to the lives of the other half of humanity, there is often nothing but silence. And these silences are everywhere. Our entire culture is riddled with them. Films, news, literature, science, city planning, economics. The stories we tell ourselves about our past, present and future. They are all marked, disfigured, by a female-shaped, absent presence. This is the gender data gap. The gender data gap isn't just about silence. These silences, these gaps, have consequences. They impact on women's lives every day. The impact can be relatively minor. Shivering in offices set to a male temperature norm, for example, or struggling to reach a top shelf set at a male height norm. Irritating, certainly. Unjust, undoubtedly. But not life-threatening. Not like crashing in a car whose safety measures don't account for women's measurements. Not like having your heart attack go undiagnosed because your symptoms are deemed atypical. For these women, the consequences of living in a world built around male data can be deadly. One of the most important things to say about the gender data gap is that it is not generally malicious or even deliberate. Quite the opposite. It is simply the product of a way of thinking that has been around for millennia and is therefore a kind of not thinking. A double not thinking, even. Men go without saying, and women don't get said at all. Because when we say human, on the whole, we mean man. This is not a new observation. Simone de Beauvoir made it most famously when in 1949 she wrote, Humanity is male, 
and man defines woman not in herself, but as relative to him. She is not regarded as an autonomous being. He is the subject. He is the absolute. She is the other. What is new is the context in which women continue to be the other. And that context is a world increasingly reliant on and enthrall to data, big data, which in turn is panned for big truths by big algorithms using big computers. But when your big data is corrupted by big silences, the truths you get are half-truths at best. And often, for women, they aren't true at all. As computer scientists themselves say, garbage in, garbage out. This new context makes the need to close the gender data gap ever more urgent. Artificial intelligence that helps doctors with diagnoses, that scans through CVs, even that conducts interviews with potential job applicants, is already common. But AIs have been trained on datasets that are riddled with data gaps. And because algorithms are often protected as proprietary software, we can't even examine whether those gaps have been taken into account. On the available evidence, however, it certainly doesn't look as if they have. Caroline, thank you for meeting us to talk about your book, Invisible Women, which has just come out in paperback. In the book, you cover a huge range of examples, design, engineering, transport, medicine, biology, education. It seems that everywhere you cast your eye, there's a data gap waiting to be explored. So my first question is, where did the book start and how did it grow from there? Mm. Well, that is quite a long answer. Well, there's a short answer and a long answer. The short answer is that the book came about as a result of discovering the gender data gap in medicine. So I was researching my first book and that was how I came across some research showing that women are more likely to be misdiagnosed if they have a heart attack because um, women don't necessarily experience the sort of so-called typical heart attack symptoms that um, I certainly had always been taught. And I found that incredibly shocking. Um, not only that I had never heard of these supposed female symptoms that I was meant to be looking out for, but also that doctors were not trained well enough to recognize them. So I found that really shocking. And very shortly after that, I also found that we are excluding women, um, female cells, female animals, and female humans from clinical uh, research because the female body is seen as too complicated. And this was just so shocking to me, you know, the idea that medicine, which we think of obviously is objective and neutral and, and, you know, of all the places you expect women to be taken into account, female bodies to be taken into account, surely it would be medicine, which is literally the study of bodies. Um, so that was really shocking, but it wasn't really where the book started in a way. It was sort of the final, uh, the straw that broke the camel's back that led me to writing the book. Um, and really, I think the book had been unconsciously brewing for about seven years, um, really from the moment that I first became a feminist. So I uh, did not grow up a feminist at all. I thought feminism was stupid. I hated it. I found it embarrassing. Um, and I really was very dismissive of my fellow women. I firmly believed the stereotypes about women, that women are over-emotional, irrational, hysterical, trivial, superficial, um, boring, not funny, um, unintellectual, um, everything that I certainly didn't identify with and didn't want to be seen as. Um, but instead of sort of questioning the stereotype, I accepted the stereotype and just thought that I was different and wanted not to be treated like that. Um, and so I wasn't interested in a movement that was dedicated to helping 
what I saw as an inferior sex. I just didn't want to be part of that sex. Um, and this sort of carried on until I got to university in my mid-twenties. I went as a mature student to study uh, for my undergraduate and I picked up this book, which I had to pick up, uh, called Feminism and Linguistic Theory. And I read in this book about uh, the generic masculine in language and in grammar. So he to mean he or she, man to mean humankind. And I um, initially, of course, rolled my eyes because obviously I'd heard this before. Um, I think like a lot of people who don't know much about feminism, you know, that's one of the things that you know about, right? That feminists complain about he to mean he or she. Um, and, uh, you know, I just sort of thought, well, I'm just, I'm not like one of those stupid illogical feminists. I'm a logical, rational woman who knows that of course it means he or she, and you know, there are other things to get worried about. But the next line I read was something I'd never heard before, which is that when women hear these words, they picture a man. And that just completely blew my mind um, because I realized for the first time that that's what I was doing. I was picturing a man when I heard these words and I couldn't believe that that was the first time I'd ever noticed it, that it'd been happening for years um, and somehow it had never occurred to me to question it. Or was that just, I'd not noticed it and I just thought I'm a woman. I should be picturing women sometimes at least, you know? And uh, so the fact that I wasn't was incredibly shocking to me. And the fact that I wasn't and hadn't noticed was even more shocking. And it just really set me down this path of really noticing when um, humans were assumed to be male because of the fact that I realized that's what I did. And so, um, you know, following my first degree, I went on to study um, behavioral economics and feminist economics, and that was where I discovered that the economy also is designed around the default male, and that you know GDP, which we think of as this neutral objective figure, this neutral measure of the economy, is in fact missing out a huge swathe of economic activity, and that as a result we aren't allocating resources in an equitable or sensible manner. Um, and the next thing I discovered was um, that uh, asylum seeker policy has also been designed around the male experience of being a refugee and so it's much harder for women to claim asylum and again you know that was a really good example I felt of this unconscious bias that there's no way that this regulation law um, UN declaration was designed with the intention of making it harder for women it's just that we're so used to thinking of the male experience as the universal experience that this kind of thing happens and so by the time I got to uh, discovering that this happened in, uh, in in the medical world and that women were dying as a result, you know, it was just sort of the dams opened. So I said it was a very long answer. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> it was a very long answer. That's fine. And I think what your book does really well is turn the unconscious into the conscious. Since reading Invisible Women about a year ago, I've developed a low-level seething anger every time I stand in a queue for a public toilet. Yes, uh -huh. And quite often, I will turn to the complete stranger next to me and start quoting facts about inequality and the inequity of public news. <laughs> Is that a common reaction to your book, that people start reeling off examples to anyone who will uh listen? I mean, no one's done it to me, um, but I have been told that this is a very common reaction, yeah. And it's interesting the way that public loos have become something that women have really seized on. Um, because, you know, and, and my theory for why that is, is that I think a lot of women felt the way I did about the public loos, which is we thought it was our fault. We just thought, why are all these other stupid women taking so long 
you know, I'm so quick, why do they take so long? You know, this is just forcing me to stand in queue, they're probably doing all their makeup. You know, the way you come out and men sort of laugh at you and say, stupid women all doing your makeup in the loo, having pillow fights. And um, so to discover that this isn't actually our fault, that this is because of a structural systemic design flaw that has meant we actually have less provision when we need far more provision, has made women so angry that it's developed this kind of grassroots rage where women are taking pictures of themselves standing in queues for the toilet and sending them to me and, you know, posting them on social media because they're so <laughs> angry that this is happening, which I, obviously I love to see, but it, it is, it's really interesting to me that that's the one that has really sort of ignited this fury because obviously there are examples that are much more uh, serious, you know, like car crash safety and of course medical stuff. But this is one of those everyday things. And I, and I think it's because it's something that women encounter so often. Um, and also, it, it's the mixture of it being so common um, and of women having been ridiculed for it. Um, and also, I think, because it's such a clear manifestation of how we are just not thought of and expected to just kind of get on with it and have our time wasted. There are some parts of the book that now have a disturbingly prophetic tone. There's a section, for example, where you talk about the SARS outbreak in 2002 yeah. and the failure to systematically track outcomes for pregnant women. Mm -hmm. You explain that this will be yet another gender data gap for when the next pandemic hits. Yeah. Can you explain what you meant by that and the consequences of that sort of gap in our understanding? We don't routinely track outcomes for pregnant women. So women in general are not included in medical trials because the female body is seen as too complicated. We have started to get a little bit better about it, um, but pregnant women are still totally excluded. Um, and, uh, and, you know, pregnant women may not want to be involved in clinical trials. That's very understandable. You know, you don't want to just expose your fetus to any old um, medication. But there are, you know, that doesn't mean we just can't collect data on pregnant women, um, but that has been what has happened, what has happened. So we aren't sort of tracking the outcomes for women. So when there are outbreaks, we should be tracking how it affects pregnant women, how it affects non-pregnant women, how it affects men, you know, and seeing what are, uh, you know, the, the, the implications of pregnancy, the implications of sex, um, so that when the next pandemic comes, you know, we know a bit more what we're dealing with. So all we really know is that SARS did have a, a more extreme effect on pregnant women. Um, so that could mean that coronavirus will as well. But because we weren't really systematically um, following women, we don't know. Um, and, and, and it does actually get worse than that. So in the Ebola outbreak, um, pregnant, basically maternal mortality was 100%. There was not a single um, mother and baby that survived Ebola, um, a mother and baby pair. There was one baby that survived, uh, the mother died. And basically this was because pregnant women were not allowed to enroll themselves in these clinical trials for vaccines that had been proven very, very promising. Um, and even after the, the trials had sort of concluded and there was sort of experimental handing it out, pregnant women weren't allowed to be given the vaccine because they hadn't been included in the study. And so they didn't know how it would affect women, even though 
there was a 100% mortality rate from Ebola if you were pregnant. And this baby survived simply because the uh, woman lived long enough to give birth. The baby was immediately given the vaccine. The mother was not given the vaccine and she died. So we have this really um, terrible sort of mix of the infantilization of women where they aren't allowed to make these decisions for themselves of being told, yeah, it might affect you badly, but also you're going to die if you don't take it. So what do you want to do? I think most women would choose to save themselves and their baby with whatever chance they, they could take, but they're not allowed to. Um, and this is basically because insurers didn't want to pay or pharma companies didn't want to pay the extra um, insurance money or governments just didn't want to. So there's a huge problem there where we simply lack the data and then women sort of have this double punishment of, not, of because we don't have the data, they're not allowed to receive the treatment. The consequences of some of these gender data gaps, if you, as you've just described, can be at worst fatal. Mm -hmm. It's truly shocking some of the examples you, you use in the book. What impact do you think Invisible Women has had since it was published, both at an individual and at a national policy level? You know, it's been a year, so I think it's it's difficult to know exactly what the impact will be. Um, but certainly I've had a lot of people getting in touch. Um, I've had government reaction and I've had company organizational reactions where they have actually made a change as a result of having read the book. So for example, in Scotland, um, Nicola Sturgeon announced this working group on collecting sex and gender data. Um, so they are coming up with some guidelines for collecting sex and gender data, which is incredible. And, you know, that could have a global impact, you know, if it's done well and it gets released and then other countries can start using it. So that's amazing. I've also had um, so many uh, communications from women telling me about how, as a result of the book, they have gone back to doctors who had dismissed them and insisted on, you know, finding out what's wrong with them, essentially. One woman in particular who had been repeatedly dismissed, who was having these terrible migraines, um, found out that actually she had suffered from a stroke that hadn't been caught and part of her brain was necrotic and she had been dismissed as, you know, there's nothing wrong with you. Um, and she said that because of the book, she felt able to go back to the doctor and say, you know, I'm not going to allow you to dismiss me. And she's now getting treatment, which is amazing, but also enraging that that had happened to her. You know, it was such a serious medical condition. Um, I've had uh, loads of researchers getting in touch, telling me that they're changing the way they do the research. They've gone back and redone some research that they realized they hadn't done in a way that was enable them, enabling them to collect data on women. So the sort of initial signs are that the impact is really positive. Um, and I'm hoping that, you know, it will carry on growing as more awareness spreads um, and people who have read the book tell other people about it and they start changing their ways, you know. In your work as a writer, a journalist and a campaigner, you've had some extreme highs and also some extreme lows. On the one hand, Invisible Women has won awards and top bestseller lists. And on the other hand, you've been subject to some pretty horrific online abuse for daring to raise your head above the parapet. How have you handled the reaction to your work? The sort of really bad abuse came about right at the beginning. And so I sort of became high profile in a way alongside the abuse 
So it was this steep learning curve on both angles of learning what it's like to have people talking about you when you don't know who they are, and also people threatening to rape and murder and mutilate you. Um, and that was, that was really difficult. Both parts of that were really difficult. Um, but I think because I had this sort of um, trial by fire, um, it meant I was just thrown in the deep end and I just had to learn how to deal with it. Um, and it took me a while. I would say it probably took me about a year to sort of start to get over that. Um, and I wouldn't say that I'm, you know, completely zen about all of it now, but you just sort of have to learn to let go of that control that as a private person you have over what people think about you and will say about you. Um, and learn to sort of think that you care about what people who know you say and think about you. And also to um, to sort of try and learn to distinguish between threats that are an actual danger and threats that are just intended to shut you up. And that was something that I didn't know when the threats were coming in, that you know I didn't know who these people were, I didn't know what they were capable of, and I'd never experienced anything like it before. And I just simply wasn't used to the level of graphic violent abuse that women get online. Whereas now, I'm not saying if it happened again, I would be absolutely fine with it, but I think I would know how to handle it a bit better. And expect it right. coming, sadly. Exactly, you know, um, so I've had a few sort of flare ups since then. And it's always unpleasant. It's always a bit frightening. It does always get your heart rate going. Yeah. Um, but it's not as sort of overwhelming um, as it was that first time. And finally, what's next for you, Caroline? Well, uh, I'm not really ready to move on from this yet. There's so much to do. Um, and there's so many sort of opportunities that have arisen as a result of the book coming out with people getting in touch with me, having great ideas for how to close the gender data gap. So I'm still, I'm still very focused on this, you know, because this is so much more than a book to me. You know, this was really a sort of, without sounding too grandiose, it was kind of a mission statement. Um, and, and I really want to be able to do whatever I can to try and address the issues that I raise in the book. Such an extraordinary woman, great fun and extremely bright. I love the way she turned up to meet Emma with her lovely dog Poppy. And there's a photo of the three of them on our social media pages. I found Invisible Women a superb read. It's packed with thoroughly researched data and fascinating statistics, but it somehow never feels dry. And it kind of talks about things we've all felt in our bones, but perhaps we haven't had the facts to back up our feelings before. Yes, I found that statistic about car accidents quite daunting. The fact that because safety tests are based on the average height and weight of a man, women are 47% more likely to be seriously injured. OK, on to the next section of the podcast. Normally at this point we'd have a chat with our library staff about their book recommendations. But this edition, it's a little bit different. We're going to talk about some of the unlimited titles we have available this month from our BorrowBox app. If you haven't tried BorrowBox yet, then give it a go. You just need your Hampshire Library membership number and your PIN. You'll find your number on your library card. And if you've lost your PIN, you can have it emailed to you. Have a look at our website for how to do this. 
BorrowBox has literally tens of thousands of books and audiobooks to download, all absolutely free, just like a normal library. You might find you have to reserve and wait to get a popular title. For example, when I last checked, there was a three-week wait to download Invisible Women. But I find that, while I might have to wait for some books, I can always find something I want to read that's available straight away. And every month, there's a new selection of popular books which an unlimited number of people can borrow at the same time. This month, there's more than a dozen unlimited titles, what we refer to as no wait, no fuss books. You'll find the full list on our podcast notes. But here's just a few to whet your appetite. Well, where to start? The some of my favourites of recent years on this month's list. I'm a huge fan of The Power by Naomi Alderman, which is one of the audiobooks you can download without a wait. Yeah, it's a book which has been championed by Margaret Atwood and has some parallels with A Handmaid's Tale, I believe. Well, it imagines a world exactly like our own, but one in which young women start developing the ability to emit electric shocks through their hands. Perhaps not surprisingly, this leads to a global shift of power between men and women. That's such an interesting premise and quite fitting for our guest to this episode. And talking of Margaret Atwood, there's one of her books on our No Wait list for April, The Penelope Ad, which retells the story of Penelope, who is the wife of Odysseus and the cousin of Helen of Troy. And there's another Greek myth, retold in Circe by Madeline Miller, which also features in this month's collection. I've just finished it and I loved it. Circe is a goddess of magic and she's the daughter of the sun god Helios. She gets banished to a mythical island where she works on her magical skills and over hundreds of years comes across many of the most famous figures in Greek mythology, including the Minotaur, Daedalus and his doomed son Icarus, and Odysseus, husband, of course, of Penelope. Okay, so a book that I'm a big fan of is called Holes and it's by Louis Sacker. It's one of five new children's and young adult books on our No Wait, No Fuss list. I remember my son loving that book. Yeah, it's a young adult novel set in America about a very unlucky teenage boy called Stanley who's falsely accused of theft and sent to a juvenile detention centre in the middle of the desert. Every day, he and the other inmates, in sweltering heat, each have to dig a large hole and report anything they find. Hence the title of the book. Indeed. Uh, Now, the evil warden of the jail claims the hole digging is about building character, but Stanley begins to suspect this isn't the whole truth at all. There's a mystery to be sold in another of the No Wait, No Fuss titles for this month, which is Costa Winner, The Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle by Stuart Turton, which is another you can download immediately as an audiobook. OK, I've heard of this. What's it about? Well, it's one of those books that's virtually impossible to describe. Think kind of uh, Agatha Christie combined with a computer game, or Downton Abbey mixed with Groundhog Day. If you'd rather go to this book blind, and that may be the best way to start, then turn the volume down for the next minute or so of the podcast. Although, of course, I won't be giving any spoilers away. 
The story starts with the narrator waking up in a forest with amnesia. He doesn't know who he is, where he is, or why he's running scared. He finds his way to a country house where he discovers he's one of the many guests invited to some big fancy party. And then, after a long and tense day, he finally goes to sleep and then wakes up in the morning and it's the same day. But he's in another person's body. It's bewildering, but it's beautifully constructed. And there's many more on our No Wait, No Fuss list, including books by Linda LaPlante and Jodie Pico. Have a look at our show notes for the full collection. One final book on the list I'd like to mention is Sal by Mike Kitson, because it's our virtual book club pick for April. You'll find links to the group, which we call Digital Readers, on the Hampshire Library's Facebook page. The book is about two sisters, 13-year-old Sal and her younger sister Pepper, who run away from home into the Scottish wilderness. There's some regional slang and swearing which gives the novel a bit of an edge, but it's a lovely read for young adults and older ones too. So download the book and join the conversation through our Hampshire Library's Facebook group. There's a calendar of different library activities available through our Facebook page, as well as a whole host of online resources such as free newspapers and magazines to download. And thanks once again to our supporter BorrowBox, our library app that allows you to download ebooks and audiobooks straight to your phone or tablet. All you need is your library membership number and PIN. You'll find all the details on our website. And that just leaves me to say that while our buildings may be closed, we are always open online. I'm Mary Stone. And I'm Kate Price McCarthy. 